Did I not know my old friend John Horton to be truthful, as he is devoid of imagination? I should have believed that he was romancing or dreaming when he told me the sentences that happened to him some thirty years ago. He was at the time a bachelor, living in London and practising as a solicitor in Bedford Row. He was not the strong man, though neither nervous nor excitable, as I said before, singularly unimaginative. If Horton told, told you the fact, you might be certain that it occurred in the precise manner he stated. If he told you a hundred times, he could not vary it in a repetition. This literal and conscientious habit of mind made his testament of value. When he told me a fact that I should have disbelieved from any other man, for my friend, I was obliged to accept it as truth. It was during the long vacation in the autumn of 1857 that Horton determined to take a few weeks' holiday in the country. He was such an innovative, vertebrate Londoner. He had not been able to tear himself away from the town for more than a few days at a time, for many years past. But at length he felt the necessity of quiet bureau. Only he would not go far to seek them. It is easier then, it is now, to find a lodging that would meet his requirements, a place in the country yet close to town. It was near Wandsworth that Holton found what he sought, rooms of a single gentleman in an old farmhouse. He read the advertisement of the lodgings in the paper at luncheon, and went that very afternoon to see if they and answered to the tempting description given. He had some little difficulty in finding Malahan's farm. It is not easy to find his way through the country lanes that, to his tired eyes, looked precisely alike, with nothing to indicate whether he had taken a right or wrong turning. The gate railway now runs shrieking over what had been green fields, lanes, have been transformed into gaslight streets and Martelland's farm. The old red brick house standing in its high walled garden had been pulled down long ago. The last time Horton went to look at the old place it had changed beyond recognition and the orchard in which he had gathered pears and apples during his stay at the farm was now a site of public house and dissenting chapel. It was on a hot afternoon early in September when Horton opened the big iron gates and walked up to the path bordered with dahlias and hollyhocks leading to the front door and rang for admittance at Matalan's farm. A bell echoed in a distant part of the empty house and died away into silence. But no one came to answer its summons as Horton soon stood waiting he took the opportunity of thoroughly examining the outside of the house. Though it was called a farm, it had not been built for one originally. It was a substantial, four-story brick house of Queen Anne's period, with tall, five tall slash windows on each floor, and dormer windows in the tile roof. 
The front door was approached by a shadow flight of stone steps. Above the fan-like projected a penthouse of celerity carved woodwork. On either side was brackets of wrought iron, supporting its signatures that quenched the torch of many a late returning reveller a century ago. Only the windows to the right and left of the house, or the left of the door, had blinds of curtains betrayed any sign of habitation. Those are the rooms to be let. I wonder which is the bedroom, thought my friend as he rang the bell for the second time. Besides, he heard, within the sound of the approaching footsteps, there was a great drawing of bolts, and after a final struggle, a rusty lock. The door was opened by an old lady, woman of severe and cheerless aspect. Autumn was first, was the first to speak. I have called to see the rooms of eyes, advertised to be let in this house. The old woman eyed him from head to toe, without making any reply, then opened the door wider, nodded to him to enter. He did so, and found himself in a large paved hall, lighted with that fanlight over the door, and by the high narrow window, facing him at the top of the short flight of the oak stairs. The air was musty and damp as that of an old church. Oh, this size should be have a firehead, said Halton, glancing at the empty fireway's rusty gate. Farmers and folks work out the doors, keep themselves warm without fires, said the woman sharply. This house is never built for a farm. Why is it called one? inquired Halton, as of his tactical guide, as she opened the door of the sitting room, because it was one. Said it was a blunt employee. When I was a girl, he was a man house, and maybe called that again. Oh, I know. For thirty years now, since, a man named Madeline took it on a lease and farmed the land. And the folks forgot the old name. It's called Madeline's Farm. When when did Madeline leave? About two months ago. What did he. Why did he go away from such a nice place like this? You are fond of asking questions, remarked the old woman dryly. He went for two reasons. His lease was up, the family was also big and modern. Nine children he had, from a girl or two, and twenty down to a little lad of four years old. His wife and him thought it best to take him out to Australia, where there was room for all. They were glad to go, but the eldest Esther, she all nearly broke her heart over it. But when she had to leave her sweetheart behind her, he's a young man in a diary farm near here, and always to follow her out and marry her twelve months. She did nothing but mourn, same as if he was leaving him altogether. Oh dear, oh indeed, said Holton, who didn't, who could not really enter the details about people whom he did not know. So it's this the living room. It's large and airy. And has as much furniture as his man needs by himself. Now show me the bedroom, if you please. Follow me upstairs, sir, said the old woman, preceded him slowly up the oak staircase, and opened the door, the back door, room of the first floor. Then the bar bedroom, that's you let, is not over the sitting room? No, the front door is my room is mine. The room next to it is my son's. He's out all day at work, 
but he sleeps here and mostly keeps me company of an evening. I'm lonely all day looking after the place. You take the rooms, I shall cook for you and wait on you myself. Horton looked like the room of the bedroom. Look at the bedroom. It was large and airy, with little furniture in it beyond the bed, a chest of drawers. But it was deadly clean and silent as a grave. How a tired man might sleep here. The walls are decorated with old prints and black frames of the rake's progress and marriage a la mode. And above the high carved mantelpiece hung an engraving of the famous painting of Charles I on a prancing brown horse. These things are were on the walls when the Matlin took the place. And he had to leave them where they found them, said the old said the old woman. They found us that saw too, she added, pointing to a pointing to a rusty cutlass that hung there from a nail by the head of the door. What do you think? They'd done no good great arm if they sold it on it for old iron. Horton took down the weapon and examined it. It was ordinary cutlass. It was worn by the Marines in George III's reign, not old enough to be in critic interest, but of, not of significant, nor of significant beauty. Virtue to make it of artistic value. He placed it and stepped to the windows, and looked in the garden below. It was bordered by high wall enclosing a row of poplars, and beyond lay the open country, visible for miles, in clear air as a slight. Arrest and fascinated air, I of the Londoner, of a Londoner. Alden made his bargain with the old woman, whom the landlord had put in the house as a caretaker, pending his decision about the disposition of the property. He was allowed to take a lodger for her own profit, as soon as Mrs. Belt found that the stranger agreed to her terms, he, she assured him that everything should be comfortably arranged for reception by the following Wednesday. Horton arrived at Madeline's farm on the evening of the appointed day at the stormy autumnal sunset was causing, casting an angry glow on the windows of the house. A rising wind filled the air with mournful sounds. The poplars swayed again to the black a background of lucid sky. Mrs. Belt was expecting her lodger, and promptly opened the door, candle on hand, when she heard the wheels stopping at the gate. The driver of the fly carried Morton's parameter into the hall, was paid his fare, and drove away, thinking the darkening lanes more cheerful than a glimpse he had of the inside of Madeline's farm. Horton was thoroughly pleased with his country quarters, the intense quiet of the almost empty house, that might have made another man melancholy, smoothed and arrested him. In the daytime he wandered about the country, or amused himself in the garden and orchard. He spent the long afternoon evenings alone, reading and smoking in his sitting room. Miss Belt brought in supper at nine o'clock, and usually stayed to have a chat with a lodger. Many a long story she related to of her neighbours and the matter of family while she waited upon him at his evening meal. On several occasions she told him that Esther Madeline's sweetheart, Michael Wynne, had come to talk with her about the Madeline's, or to bring her a newspaper containing tidings that the ship had reached some point this long voyage in safety. You see that the petal 
It's a sailing vessel, sir. And there's no saying how long she'll get into Australia. The last news Michael had, she got as far as the some islands on the outlandish name. An outlandish name. He had a letter from Esther posted a place called Marid Midridar. And now he gives himself no peace till he can hear the ship's safe as far as somewhere. I think it say, he said it's in Africa. It will be the Cape, Mrs. Belt. That's the name, sir, the Cape. He warrants all the time for fear of storms and shipwrecks. But I can tell him the world's wide place and the sea wider along and very lightly. When the chimney pots is flying and our heads are gale, there's a petal lying become somewhere. And when he turns up, takes up the, my foot and turns it against me, yes, he says, and when it's dead calm here on the shore, the ship may be sinking in a storm, and my Esther being drowned. Michael Winner must be a very nervous man. That's, that's where he is, sir. I tell him that he follows the Matlands. It's a good job that he leaves no one behind him. That worried about him, the same as he worried about Esther. It was the middle of October, and Horton had been a, a month at the farm. The weather had now, the now cold and wet. He began to think it was time he returned to his snug London home. But the autumn rain made him everything at Madeline's farm damp. A moldy, you're blowing half a girl all day. The rain of risen had fallen in torrents, keeping him a prisoner indoors. But he preoccupied himself in writing letters and reading some legal documents his client had brought him out to him. The time passed rapidly. Indeed, the evening flew so quickly. He had no idea it was nine o'clock when Mrs. Belt entered the room to lay the cloth for supper. It's a stop of rainy now, sir, she said, as she poked the fire into a cheerful blaze. And a good job too for Michael Wynn brings me new word that Woodall, a Woodall is a river in London, risen and fearful since morning, and is out of places more than it's been for years. But it's a full moon tonight, so no one need walk into the water unless they have mind to. Holden's head was full of knotty legal weight to pay much heed to Mrs. Belt, and the old woman seeing that he was not in the mood for conversation. Said nothing further. At half past ten, she brought a lodger some spirits and hot water, his bedroom candle, and wished him good night. Odin sat reading for some time, then made an entry in his diary concerning a day, which was there, which was absolutely nothing to record. Lighted his candle and went upstairs. I am familiar with the precise order of each such of each trifling sentence. My friend so often told me. The events that night, that never with the slightest addition or omission, the telling, he was in his habit that last thing at night, to draw up the curved blinds. He looked out the window, and through the moon was full, the clouds had not yet dispersed. A light was footful and obscure. In twenty minutes to twelve, he extinguished the candle by his bedside. Everything was propitious for rest. He was weary, and the house profoundly silent. The rain had stopped. The wind fallen to sigh. It seemed to him as soon as he had his head pressed the pillow, he sank into dreamless slumber. Shortly after two o'clock, Holton woke suddenly, passing instantly from deep sleep to possession of 
be facility, a heightened degree, and an insupportable sense of fear. Weighing upon him like a thousand nightmares, he started up with looked around him. The perspiration poured from his brow. His heart beat to suffocation. He was convinced he had been walked late by some strange and terrible noise that had filled through the steps of sleep. He dreaded the repetition of it inexplicably. especially. The window room was flooded with moonlight streaming through the wind narrow windows, lying like sheets of molten silver on the floor, and poplars in the garden cast tremendous shadows on the ceiling. Then the Horton heard through the silence of the house a sound that was not a moan of the wind, nor the rustling of trees, nor any sound he had heard before. Clear and distinct, as though it were in the room with him, he heard a voice of weeping lamentation, with more than human sorrow in a cry, so that it seemed to him as though he listened to the mourning of a lost soul. He leapt up, struck a match, and lighted the candle, and seizing the cutlass that hung by the bed, unlocked the door and opened it to listen. So far as all ordinary sounds were concerned, the house was silent as death. The moonlight streamed through the staircase window in a flood of pale light, but the unlovely sound of weeping, thrilling through heart and soul, came in the hall below, and Horton walked downstairs to the landing at the top of the first flight. There, on the lowest step, a woman was seated with a bowed head, her face hidden in her hands, rocking to and forth in extremity of grief. The moonlight fell on her. He saw that she was only partly clothed, and her dark hair lay in confusion on her bare shoulders. Who are you? And what is the matter with you? said Halton, with his trembling voice echoed in the side of the house, but she neither stirred, nor spoke, nor abated her weeping. Slowly he descended the moonlit staircase, till there were but four steps behind him, and the woman, a mold of fear, was growing upon him. Speak, if you are a living being, he cried. The figure rose to its full height, turned and faced him for a moment, that seemed an eternity, and rushed full to the point of the cutlass. Hooten involuntarily presented, as in plurable form guided up the blade of the weapon, a cold wave seemed to break over him. He fell in a dead faint on the stairs. How long he remained insensible, he could not tell. When he came to himself and opened his eyes, the moon had set. He groped his way into darkness to his room, where the candle burnt itself out. When Houghton came bound to breakfast, he looked as though he had been ill for a month. His hands trembled like a drunkard's. At any other time, Mrs. Belt would have been struck by his appearance. But this morning, she too, she was much excited by some bad news. She had heard to notice whether a lodger was looking well or ill. Houghton asked her how she had slept, if she had not heard the terrible sounds that waked him. It still seemed impossible. She should not have heard his heavy fall on the stairs. Mrs. Belt replied with some astonishment at Lodge's concern for welfare, that she had never had a better night. He was so quiet 
after the wind fell. But did you not? Did your son think? What did you think? Did, but did your son think the house was quiet? Did he sleep too? Asked Holton with feverish eagerness. Isabel was yearning to impart her bad news to a lodger and remarking that it's something else to do and then asked folks how they slept on nights. She said a neighbour had told her that Michael Wynne had fallen into the window during the night. No one knew how and all and was drowned and they were carrying his body home then. What a terrible blow for his sweetheart, said Holton, greatly shot. I... There, there's a pretty piece of news to send her, when she suspected to see poor Michael herself soon. Mrs. Welp, have you any portrait of Mr. Mayland? You should show me. I heard the girl's name so often, I'm curious to know what she is like. And the old woman retired to hunt among the treasures for a small photograph of the glass. That Esther had given her before she went away. Presently, Mrs. Belt returned, polishing the picture with her apron. It's not a it's but a poor affair, sir, taking in a caravan on a coven. Yet it's like the girl, it's very like. It's a miserable production, a cheap and early effort in photography. And Holton rose from the table, with a picture in his hand to examine it at the window, and there Surrounded by the thin brass frame, he recognised the face of all faces that dismayed him. A face he beheld a vision of the cedar night. He was surprised to grow, turned from the window with a face so white that he handed the picture back to Mrs. Belt. She said, You're not feeling well this morning, sir? No, I'm feeling very ill. I must get back to town today, so to be, to be near my young doctor. You shall be no loser of my leaving, for you, Sir Sully, but I am going to be ill. I am best in my own home. For Houghton could not have stayed another night at Badland's farm to save his life. He was at his office in Bedford Row by noon. His clerks thought he looked ten years older for his visit to the country. A little more than three weeks after Houghton returned to town, for his nerves were beginning to cover a custom tone, his attention was unexpectedly recalled to the harrowed subject of the apparition he had seen. He read in his daily paper the mail from the Cape had brought news of a regular sailing boat vessel, petrol, bound for Australia, the loss of all on board in a violent storm off the coast. Shortly before the steamer left for England, by careful comparison of dates, allowing for the valuation of time, conviction, was forced upon John Norton that the ill-fated ship founded at the very hour in which he held the wrath of Esther Matterland. She and a lover divided by thousands of miles, both perished by the drowning at the same time. Michael Wynne, the little river at home, and Esther Matterland in the depths of a distant ocean.